this is the anniversary of 9-11, September 11th, and everyone in this room obviously re remembers that and, and certainly where you were. I remember where I was on that day. I was driving down for a business trip to Springfield, and I remember listening to the radio and um, hearing all this unfold. And I, I went down there, I had this meeting, and I, I drove back, and, and all day that's all I could listen to, and I wanted to get in front of a TV so bad because it just didn't, didn't seem real what was happening. And then years later, obviously, we, the truth comes out and we know much more about it. But there are so many people who lost their lives and so many people who gave their lives. And I'm not just talking about on that day. We have heroes that were, that came, that were made that day and heroes that were inspired by that day. You know, and I, I just want to share, you know, a couple of the, you know, uh, things that are probably obvious. You know, we have our military. How many of the military men and women were inspired to sign up by the events of 9-11, say never again will I let someone defend our country or fight to attack our country on our soil. You know, it was, it was President Reagan that said, soldiers fight not because they hate what's in front of them, but because they love what's behind them. I hope it was President Reagan. I want to say that's who that was. But he said, they, not because they hate what's there, right? They, it's because what they love what they're defending. And of course, we think of our firefighters and our police officers and Wow, the world has changed in, in, in 20 years, hasn't it, right? These were our heroes that rushed in and helped people get out and essentially gave their lives to make sure that they could save some. And of course, our uh, medical professionals as well. So remember all those that served and were inspired to serve by those who lost their life. And if you ever have opportunity to go to New York and see the Ground Zero Memorial, it is, it is very, I don't even know. I mean, it's, you're almost speechless. It's just such solemn ground, an amazing thing to see. And of course, one of the things that came out of that, do you remember how united we were as a nation after that? I remember in Kansas City on the very back page of the paper was this, was American flag printed. Do you remember that? In the Kansas City Star, is a flag, is full page. And then, in, you know, and it also had the little bit of the, of the speech given by um, then President Bush, right, about resolve. And I remember how many people had those newspaper pages taped in their windows. It was cool. Man, when we're united, we're, we're powerful. And I mean that in a good way. We have the ability as a great, great nation to be an influence in the world in many, many good ways. And I pray that it doesn't take something like that again to bring us back to where God wanted us to be, right? So remember 9-11 today and, and, and going forward and certainly honor those who, who serve this nation. This morning, it's a message titled More and Less, a little hint to next week, which is going to be an hour later. But I have this hat that I picked up, and, and I love this hat. You can tell because it's dirty, a little sweaty. And you can see the, the symbol on it says, he is greater than I. Very simple, very simple, very powerful. He is greater than I. It's based on this week's scripture, remember, that Candace read from John 3.30. It says, he, meaning God, must become greater I must become less. Other translations say he must increase, I must decrease. When John says that God must become greater than he or, or us, um, he's speaking of the determined will of God. Where, where God's priority and where God's influence is, right? There's got to be more of that in the world and less of what we're doing. Where are we putting God in our lives, specifically in relationship to our own interests? And that's what we're talking about. You see, John finds his joy 
not in grudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent. Okay, God, you got it. So, you know, I'll just do what you said because I'm terrified of what you might do, right? It's not like that. He finds joy because he's wholeheartedly embracing God and God's will and the authority that it assigns to Jesus Christ. You know, he's giving control of all the things that we try to hold on to in our life and saying, you got this. You're good. You're powerful. You know what's right. You know what's good. That brings peace. That's the good kind of surrender. And I've said this before. This is the one place you don't leave your problems at the door. You bring them and you leave them at the cross. You know, we'd be, do well to be like-minded to John in this view and the level of devotion. And Mark 9, 35 records that Jesus sat down. He called his 12 disciples around him. And he said to them, if anybody wants to be first, they must be last of all and servant of all. That probably confused them. But he went on through his ministry and the way he modeled his lives and the many, many lessons captured in Scripture to reveal what that means. And we're going to take a look at that this morning. So this morning we're going to look at what the Bible says about it, what it means for God to be more in, in, in through our lives and what it means for us to become less. And you can be sure that our good God still has an important role for you. And your lesson or your lesson is simply relative to his glory. He loves you. He cares for you. He has enormous blessings in store for you. He has fully equipped you to do amazing things in this world. He just needs to be more than you. And the phrase, put God first, it's, I think it's one of those cliches that, you know, that sometimes people with good intentions say, I'm with you in spirit, right? You're in my thoughts and prayers, which is wonderful and powerful if you mean it, right? We just pray together as a congregation. All those went up straight to God's ear. He's going to do what he does with them. But sometimes, you know, they want to help and you say, what should I do about this situation? Or I'm really discouraged about this or this. And say, put God first in your life. Well, that's great advice. But if it doesn't come with an explanation, you might just, that may just seem hollow. But the Bible is very clear about what it means to put God first. And this begins with the very first commandments given to God's people. So I'm reading from Exodus 20. And you'll see that verse, or the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before or beside me, period. And the second commandment, you know, you shall make no, not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And it goes in a more detail. And third, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, right? This is the one we think don't use the Lord's name in vain. That's because we respect it, we revere it, and we remember that the Lord is sovereign, okay? And the fourth, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, which we learn means to cease, to the Lord your God, okay? We have four, first four commandments, right? No other God before me. Don't bow down before anybody before, but me. Don't, you know, keep my name holy, keep my day holy, okay? Do you see where God should rank? These first four right out of the gate. It says, I am up here where I belong, and he, and he goes on to explain why. And we may say, I should never, or I would never worship another God, right? I love God, I fear God. I may not have been good in my life, but I love him, and I got my life in order. But remember that worship is giving your entire self, your thoughts, your emotions, all of that to God's use. That means you must put and keep God at the forefront of your mind. Anything that competes with that, consciously or subconsciously, is a little G God. And those little G gods are at war with 
the one true God. Even good, noble, God-given things can become inordinately prioritized. People misunderstand that verse that says money is the root of all evil. It's not what it says. The love of money. God provides blessings for us, one of which is financially. And he does it so we can, out of our abundance, doesn't feel like an abundance sometimes, be faithful and take care of others. God has given you health. And he's equipped you in many other ways with many gifts and skills so that you can use them to help others. You know, last Advent, we spent several weeks in a series called Making Room where we talked about these very things. What are the things that might take up just a little more space or priority than they should? Let's address those and put God first as we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas. But what does making God greater look like? It's putting him first in every aspect of your life. This is more than just thinking about him. It's about honoring him, being aware of him, thanking him, right? And including him. It is a conscious decision to invite him to go with you wherever you go. Consider our time of communion, which we'll celebrate in a little while. We are invited to this table. Jesus says, come, right? Take take part in this. I invite all to come. But when we leave the table, we are to invite him to go with us into the world as we go about our lives. And and like the shepherds, you know, it said, we saw the angel, we heard this. And all along their way, they proclaimed it. They didn't rush back to tell someone. It's like everywhere along the way, they said, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is Jesus, right? We come to the table and we say, God, I'm sorry. I I accept your forgiveness, okay? And he knows like we do, we're gonna still struggle. But we go from that table and we go into our lives and say, I've been forgiven. I'm not condemned, right? When when asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus answered, he says, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. How are you doing with this one? The one that Jesus himself says is the most important. As, As I answer for myself, I realize that's a, that's a tough question. If I say no, if I'm not doing that, then I'm not loving God with all my heart, my soul, and all my mind and strength, then, then I'm being disobedient to the greatest commandment. But if I say yes, then I have to admit that I'm lying because no one besides Christ has ever loved God with absolutely everything. So as you can see, I have a problem. I have a big problem. And I'm not always putting the Lord first and making him greater in my life. And, and I'm, I'll dare say I'm not the only one with this problem. But I also take comfort, and you should too. Because God promises that being less doesn't mean that your needs are overlooked, that you are less of a person, less important, or by any means less loved. Matthew 6, we're advised to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, right? But God first, he'll take care of those things. In fact, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, it provides a great narrative. And I love the subheading. It says, um, do not worry. Boy, I just, I mean, if there's something you need to turn to your page, do not worry. And it talks about the, the faith and the hope we have. And the statement from Jesus assures that God is the great provider. Provider of more than your physical needs, but your emotional and your spiritual needs as well and eternity-tied aspects of our very being. And so when we pray for things like we did a minute ago, not are we praying for physical healing for those afflicted or in the hospital, we're also praying for peace and comfort for them as well. 
Matthew 10, 39 captures the word of Jesus in another he is greater than I statement. He says, whoever finds his life must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a trade. We're putting off our old self. We're getting the new, improved us that Jesus has promised that is so good and pure and righteous because he made us that way. This doesn't always make sense to us, at least not in the way that our minds want to process how this might work. But the wisdom of three, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 instructs us, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. It says, not, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, right? Everything we do, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do you hear the promise of being taken care of by the only one who can actually promise and deliver that? It's as if God is saying, trust me. I know more about this than you do. I know it's gonna happen. I actually know you better than you do. Trust me and I'll take care of it and I will take care of you. A.W. Tozer once said, as God is exalted to the right place in our lives, to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. That brings me peace as well. It may not be quoted in scripture, but it is absolutely scriptural. There are, of course, examples to be found in the owner's manual for our lives. I love this. I love calling this the, the owner's manual. In fact, one of my favorite messages is one I called open book exam, right? Life's a test and everything you need to know is here, but you got to study it. You got to know it. You got you to gotta learn it. It's not all an easy read for sure. Doesn't all make sense. <coughs> But in that, we read the pages, we can't help but realize that God sent Jesus and Jesus got this one perfect. See, Jesus Christ put his father first in all he did. And if anybody can claim to be greater than anybody else, it's Jesus, right? He's got it perfect. He's righteous. He's sinless. He's got all this stuff. He's loving and accepting, and, but he draws boundaries on what is right and wrong. But he still says, I'm here to do his work. And when you do, your life, you do this just like Jesus did, your life will start to reflect the life of Christ. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's going to be hardship. Scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God is blessing. You will seek to align your life with the will of your father. You will spend quality time with your father in prayer and serving others. That is how you live a life it's putting God first, making him greater. And when you put God first, you think of everything else a little less. Just like Jesus, not my will, but your will. Not my glory, but your glory, Lord. Of course, we will not do everything perfectly, but the center of your life will change and everything it touches will too. So returning back to that question, asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? We read it in context. This is Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, right? You know that. And then he says, this is the great and first commandment. And he says, and the second is like it, okay? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Love God, love others. Hey, don't forget you. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Remember, the law and the prophets is the reference to the Old or the First Testament. 
He's saying all of that stuff that we're commanded to do, you will get it right if you just remember to love God, love others, and don't forget about yourself. These two, and I'll say two and a half commandments, it's, it's like a giant mallet in the game of whack-a-mole, right? We don't have trouble doing the I shall not kill, right? We're pretty good at that one. I shall not steal, I shall not lie. It's a little tougher. There's some things, and we're trying to get all these things that God and Jesus told us to do, right? Another one pops up, another temptation, another sin, another situation that just sets us off. But if we just pick up the big mouth that says, I'm going to love God. I'm going to love everybody else as much as I love God, and I'm going to love myself too. Well, why would I want to do any of those things? Because I love you, Right? I'm going to be a better person because I am going to love God. I'm going to love others. And I love myself enough too that I'm going to do my best. Luke 12, 34 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Okay. That can be a positive or a negative. So it's time for a little bit of a gut check, church. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says, you cannot serve God and money. And this verse speaks of the love of money, but, but insert any other word. You can't love God and attention. You can't love God and stuff. You can't love God and, and notoriety or, or whatever it is you, that has become important to your life. Not if you can't love it entirely. Truly anything can be inserted there and make that sentence true. Remember that the great and first commandment requires all of your heart and your mind and your soul. And this leaves no room for sharing it. So let's get practical. God becoming greater requires a few things that are 100%. And this is good news. This is in our control. First, give God your time. Talk to him. Talk to him. You know, you, you can't tell me and I can't convince myself that God is first in my life, my life if I don't spend any time with him in prayer. I have time for everything else. I certainly make time for the things I want to do. But if Christ is truly in my life, I have time. He's given me time I need to have a conversation. I don't have to get on my knees and prostrate and, and go thines and thous and all that. God, you, I just, you parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Your kids, they're, especially when they're little, doesn't even always make sense. So they pull on your leg and they say, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad, and they, they tell you this stuff, right? Yes, sometimes dogs are brown, but you're just glad to hear it from them, right? That's the way God is. He loves us. He just wants you to talk to him. Many times we're not even going to ask him for anything. We just want to be alone with him and listen. That is, that is one of the beauties of prayer. Alone time with him, getting to know him revealing ourselves. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. When you have a passion for the Lord, it will be seen in your prayer life, I promise you. So give time to God. Talk to him. Second is repent. That's a tough one, right? Because first thing you got to do is say, oh, I messed up. I did this. <coughs> Guess what? God already knew. He already knew. You're not telling him anything he didn't know. But here's the thing. I'm sorry. I did it. I'm sorry. And there's a third part that we often forget. I accept your forgiveness because he promises it. Bring your sins to him instead of trying to hide them. Remove things in your life that you know he's not pleased with and claim the promise found in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is that, this is that algebraic equation, if then. If we do this, then. Questions on our side, if we, then is his promise. All we have to do, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. So we give our time to God, we talk to him, we repent. The third thing is we count on God to be faithful. We have faith in him, we count on his promises. Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Likewise, in Luke 12, 29 through 31, do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. For all these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. There's that verse. It's the Apostle Paul who wrote to his letter to the Philippians, Philippians 4, 6 or 8. Be anxious for nothing. Easier said than done, right? It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Here's a cool part. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, right? We can't always fix a situation, but... Oh, there's something about the peace that only God can give us. And when we talk about God becoming greater, we may think of the word glory. I love that word glory, and it's in all, it's a lot of our hymns, right? We sing hymns about glorifying God, and I want to take a quick moment to talk about that word glory. You know, it's most often used, especially in the First Testament, to talk about God's radiance, his brilliance, and his awesomeness. Basically, all the greatness of God can be put in this word glory. It's glorious. God is glorious. And we cannot give glory to God. One theologian commented, and I love this analogy. He says, it would be like asking a candle to add brilliance to the light of the sun. Think about that. God is glorious. We can glorify him, but we don't make him glorious. He is glorious. But the word glory, especially in the Second Testament, or the, the New Testament, is used to describe, um, it means credit or honor, respect, right? We glorify him by giving him respect. We praise that's due him. So we, we give God that kind of glory. Learning to give God the glory in this respect is so important that we cannot be people of honesty and integrity without it being a basic part of our daily walk with him. The word world seeks to glorify itself. And that's it's kind of our nature. We want to Look at me, look what I did. Even when we're being generous, like, look what I give. But the Christian is so overwhelmingly enamored with God's glory, by the first definition, that we seek to give God glory, the second kind, or the credit, in every way possible. They say, thank God that that church is there. And they did this. Thank God that that person stopped by and gave me a smile or hug or checked in on me. To glorify God is to not bestow glory on God or to add his glory, but to recognize and acknowledge his glory and help others do the same. The idea of doing something for God's glory or giving God glory is basically a matter of agreeing with who he already is. In Isaiah 42.5, God declares this. He says, I am the Lord God. I created the heavens like an open tent above. I made the earth and everything that grows on it. I'm the source of life for all who live on this earth. So listen to what I say, as if he needed a, an intro, right? Glory is not so much something that we give God as it is something we acknowledge God already possesses. 
Glorifying God in terms of making him greater involves focusing on him as God and not on us or stuff as God's. That's a temptation that we've had since day one, that we want to be more, greater, know more, do more, have more accolades. You know, when Lucifer tempted Eve to disobey God's direct command warning against eating that forbidden fruit, he appealed to focusing on themselves instead of God. What did he say? He said, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Ooh, that sounds like a superpower, right? Indeed, their eyes were open. They were. But they did not become like God. In fact, they lost authority rather than gaining it. Satan had deceived Eve about her ability to become like the one true God and led her into a lie. We should strive to be godly, but, but not a God. To make God greater is to mirror his image, which is to love and to love generously as he does. No one can glorify God as perfectly as Christ did, for sure, which is why we are in need of his mercy. But to believe in Jesus is to believe not only what he did for us, but in the wisdom of the life that he modeled for us. We mirror his light, his love, his acceptance, his mercy for others, and God is glorified when we do. When God becomes greater in your life and you become less, you stop competing, God will bless you by equipping you just as he did Paul. As he was writing church to, uh, to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 3, 7, he says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Right? All the stuff, all the knowledge, the passion, that came from him. He says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. He continues verse 7. He says, Intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. It's a powerful charge we've been given. And this is our shared calling. You know, John 15, 5 talks about this. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, but apart from me, he can do nothing. You know, we know the branches are not greater than the vine, but all this works together to produce fruit. And we know what fruit is. Fruit is the opportunity to produce more fruit. It's the seed. It's the DNA to make the next plant. You don't plant a peach pit and then a peach comes out of the ground, right? You plant plant the seed and the plant comes and it develops it. But it takes nurturing and good soil and care and tending and the miracle of God's creation. I was doing a little science I'm trying to go back one. That was not my wavy hand. <laughs> I'm just getting carried away with the hands. You know, there's cell division. I was, I was doing a little STEM class. And, and, um, and cell division is like one big thing. And then it divides to four and divides to eight. And that's kind of how it replicates. But it's still no greater than the original thing. And then there's growth. you got the little one. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But this thing they call proliferation. It grows and it divides. So the one truly becomes two equals, becomes four equals, becomes more. And when we look at it um, in the sense of, of people and the message we share, <laughs> you know, we tell someone the good news. We may not be on the corner begging this, this whatever and holding up the sign, the world is ending, but we say, I've got a story. Listen to what God did for me. 
And I tell that to a couple people. And they either share my story or they have their own because we all do. And all of a sudden, we've made a difference in the world by multiplying the fruit. That is the calling that we've been given. John 15, 6 says, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Lord in my name, he may give to you. That is the power and the calling you've been given. You know, God is always trying to keep you on the right path. He'll straighten your path. We heard that promise. When you're headed in the right direction, right? It'll, he'll straighten your path. He'll put the footsteps under you, the stones. But like any loving father, he's gonna bump you back to center sometimes just to let you know this is the way I need you to go. And he's always trying to get our attention. He created you to fellowship with him and to do this and do his will. And he wants to speak to you every day in the wonders of nature, through the Bible, by his spirit, and through his messengers, through prayer. But in order to hear him, you must be available to listen. If you don't, how can you begrudge God when he's doing something uncomfortable to get your attention? Think about that for a moment. As I wrap up, I need to let you know that you can't put God first if you haven't decided to let him be first. Okay? You are saved by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But it doesn't end there. There's no professing Christian that would ever say God is not first in their life. We all say it. We all want it. We believe it. And you might not say that God is not first, but that is exactly what your life is. that what your life is saying? Matthew 15, 8 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So I have to ask myself, what does my life say about what I believe, about what I want, about how much I love God? And that's the invitation, the question he gives us all. He doesn't condemn you. He didn't say you're a bad person, you blew it. He says, you know what? I love you too much to leave you where you are. Let me make you better. So I'm gonna make this a little uncomfortable for you as you realize there's some stuff that needs to be worked on in your life. I'm gonna close with Psalms 27, four. The psalmist writes, the one thing I want from God, the thing I seek most of all is the privilege of meditating in his temple, living in his presence every day of my life, delighting in his incomparable perfections and glory. What a wonderful place that would be. That's what awaits for us, but we can make a taste of that here now. So let's commit in our hearts to become less, not because we have diminished value, because we certainly have an important role here, but because we want to get out of God's way and remove anything that competes with him in our lives from the place he belongs, which is the entirety of our heart, our mind, and our soul. Let's make that our prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've given us a great challenge to love you with every bit of our being. Now, you designed us to do it. We have a heart, the perfect size and perfect shape to do exactly what you asked us to do. But Lord, sometimes we put things in there that take up space that don't fit just right. There is a God-shaped, God-sized hole in our lives meant for one thing and one thing alone. Lord, when we find that, when we get it right, oh, it feels so good. But Lord, we struggle every day. That's why you tell us every day to pick up that cross. We know we don't come to the table of communion. We know we don't get baptized and know it's once and done on the struggles in life. Okay? But we know that it is done, that you have accepted us and we've been made righteous. We have been cleansed of that unworthiness. Lord, we thank you for that. That every day we get another chance to be more like the person you created us to be. 
Lord, so we pray for this day that we may be changed for the message we've heard. We might come to this table invited and invite you to go with us as we make a difference in the world. Even if it's a small one, Lord, you have equipped us to do just that. I thank you for this church. I thank you for churches like it where people can gather and worship you, have friends and fellowship, pray, hear your words, sing songs, glorify you, and Lord, get charged with a mission. We thank you, and in our hearts and in our minds and certainly in our souls, we accept that challenge. In your son's name, we pray.